Well, thank you, church, for remembering the fathers uh, that are here this morning, uh, remembering us and honoring us by that warm and special gift. I know that it will come in handy someday at my household. Um, just uh, a lot of Father's Day. Uh, wanted to just share from the Word, take a one-week break from our study in John chapter 12, 13 now, and um, just look at Genesis 22, uh, Abraham and his son, Isaac. Let me start by telling you an interview that an inter- interviewer did with uh, Lucille Ball, the first lady of American comedy, um, shortly before her death, uh, many years ago. Uh, she actually uh, did a television interview with Merv Griffin, and this is what he asked her. He asked her, Lucille, you've lived a long time on this earth. You are a very wise person. What, what has happened to our family? What has happened to our country? What's wrong with our children? What is missing? Why are our families falling apart? Lucille Ball surprisingly responded by saying, The problem lies with our dads. Dads are missing. Things are falling apart because Papa's gone. If Dad were here... He would fix it. Well, I don't know if Lucille Ball is known as a real uh, articulator and a commentator on the social ills of this country, but there in that one uh, brief statement, she hit the nail on the head figuratively. I mean, she uh, zeroed in on what was really wrong with our nation and with our families. Um, Dads, fathers are missing at home. This is arguably what I believe the single greatest sin committed by men in the church and in the families. The single greatest sin. It is not adultery, not lying, it's not stealing. In the church, it's not lack of ministry, lack of prayer, lack of evangelism. Arguably, the single greatest sin committed by men is their passivity. Passivity. Men, husbands, fathers are invisible. They're invisible at home. They're invisible in the church. They have relinquished their God-given role of leadership, of being shepherds, of being servants. And they utterly refuse to be examples at home and in the church. And because of that, therefore, the soul of our families and churches are in crisis Because men have abandoned their God-given role as men, as husbands, and as fathers. Sociologists tell us that on average, American fathers give to their children a mere three minutes of undivided attention to their children every day. Mere three minutes. Talk to many of you and ask you, when's the last time you had a heart-to-heart talk with your dad? Many times I've heard, I've never had a heart-to-heart talk with my dad. My dad never sat me down and taught me about life, about God, about the Bible, about just relationships, about character. That is a sad reality in today's world. Edmund Cole rightly labels the absence of the father as the curse of our day, and therefore, children inside are rotting because of this absence. That is the same thing's happening 
in the church as well. And that's a tragedy, isn't it? It's a tragedy in light of the special role that God has given to fathers. Fathers have unique powers of influence to their children. It is undeniable and it is irreplaceable. A father's influence upon his children. This is what R. Kent Hughes says in his book, Disciplines of a Godly Man. Somewhat lengthy, but let me read it to you. It's worth our, our attention. Quote, Men, the mere fact that fatherhood has endowed you with terrifying power in the lives of your sons and daughters because they have an innate God-given passion for you. He writes how he came across a remarkable, remarkable expression of this in Lance Morrow's book, The Chief, a memoir of fathers and sons. From time to time, I have felt for my father a longing that was almost physical, something infantile and profound. It has bewildered me, even thrown me into depression because of my longing for my father. It is mysterious to me exactly what it is I wanted from my dad. I have seen this longing in other men, and I see it now in my own sons. They're longing for me. I think that I have glimpsed it once or twice in my father's feelings about his father. One seeks not to return to the womb, but a different thing. One seeks a father's sponsorship in the world. A boy wants the aura, the armament of his father. It is a deep yearning, but sometimes a little sad. A common enough masculine trait that it is also vaguely unmanly. What surprises me is how angry a man becomes when this passion is not returned. He continues, our sons naturally want us. Perhaps, man, you have experienced something like this. You have just finished a run and you are sitting on the porch sweating like a horse and smelling like one, and your son or perhaps a little neighbor boy sits down next to you. He leans against you, and he says, You smell good. This is the primal longing for one's father. And our daughter's hearts are naturally turned toward ours with parallel longings. The terrible fact is, we can either grace our children or damn them with unrequited wounds which never seem to heal. Our society is awash with millions of daughters pathetically seeking the affection their fathers never gave them. And some of these daughters are at the sunset of their lives. In the extreme, myriads of sons, in the myriads of sons who are denied a healthy same-sex relationship with their fathers are not spending the rest of their lives in search of their sexual identity in perversion and immorality. Men, as fathers, you have such power. You will have this terrible power with you until you die, like it or not. In your attitude towards authority, in your attitude towards women, in your regard for God and the church, what terrible, terrifying responsibilities. This is truly the power of life and death. And yet, this is the reason for the tragedy today. 
that there are strong men who give their best leadership to their careers, to their occupations, and yet they utterly fail at home, end quote. Isn't this so true? That fathers have an undeniable and irreplaceable influence over their children. And this is what sons and daughters long for. A clear Christian example of this is seen in one of my Christian heroes. Um, not John Patton, but John Patton's father. <clears throat> to me, missionary John Patton is one of my Christian heroes, but his father is a greater hero because his father produced this man. You know, we talk about our, our retreat coming up and Peter Smith and man of God. I mean, just godly man, but more than I respect Peter, I respect Peter's dad, John Smith Sr. Some of you were able to spend some time with him up at Spokane, and you know what I'm talking about. The man who produces a godly man, he is truly the godly man. And John Patton talks about his father, somewhat lengthy again, but we've got time. <laughs> Let me share that with you. First of all, about John Patton. In 1606, they found a string of 80 islands off, off the coast of Australia. In 1773, Captain James Cook named these islands New Hebrides Islands. These natives were cannibals. They ate the flesh of their defeated foes. They practiced infanticide and widow sacrifice. If a husband died, they would kill the widow so that she would attend to him in the next world. They had no Christian influence whatsoever. The first missionaries landed in 1839. Men named John Williams and James Harris. Only minutes after going ashore, they were killed. And they were eaten by cannibals. Forty-eight years later, John Patton wrote in his diary, Thus were the new Hebrides baptized with the blood of martyrs, and Christ thereby told the whole Christian world that He claimed these islands as His own when He voiced His desire to take His family and to become missionaries to these islands. A Mr. Dixon in the church exploded. The cannibals! You will be eaten by cannibals! To this, Patton responded, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your prospects are soon to be laid in the grave, and there you will be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it makes no difference to me if I am eaten by cannibals or if I am eaten by worms. Because I know that in the great day of my resurrection, my body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our Redeemer. This is the kind of in-your-face moxie, intestinal fortitude, courage that John Patton had. We've got to ask, where did he get this from? This gusto to proclaim Christ and live and die for Christ. Well, it's obvious he got it from his father. It is worthy to note that he went to uh, these islands he lost his wife and son the first year he was there. He continued on in his ministry. And by the end of his life, 41 years in these islands, 85% of the islanders professed faith in Christ. The legacy of Christianity continues to this day 
all going back to John Patton. Well, let me just share with you what he writes about his father. Hope I don't get emotional here, but pray for me. I mean, his courage obviously came from his dad. This is what he writes in his autobiography, quote, There was a small room, the closet, where my father would go for prayer, as a rule, after every meal. The eleven children knew it, and they, were, they reverenced the spot, and they learned something profound about God there in that spot. Though everything else in religion were by some unthinkable catastrophe to be swept out of memory, my soul will wander back to those early scenes, shut itself up again in that sanctuary closet, and I would hear the echoes of those silent cries to God. And I remember thinking to myself, He walked with God. Talking about His Father. He walked with God. Why may not I? How much my Father's prayers at this time impressed me, I could never explain, nor could any stranger understand. When on His knees and all of us kneeling around Him in family worship, He poured out His whole soul with tears for the conversion of the world to the service of Jesus. And for every personal and domestic need, we all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior and learned to know and love Him as our divine friend. One scene best captures the depth of love between John and his father and the power of the impact of his father's life upon John Patton. The time came for the young Patton to leave his home and to go to Glasgow to attend divinity school and become a city missionary in, the early, in his early 20s. From his hometown to the train station was a 40-mile walk. Forty years later, this is what Patton wrote, my dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday. And tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then whenever memory steals me away to that scene. For the last half mile or so we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. My father, as was his custom, carrying hat in hand, while his long flowing yellow hair streamed like a girl's down his shoulders. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me, and his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was in vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence, and with solemnity, with solemnity and affection, he said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could and went about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me. I looked back and saw him still standing with head on covered where I had left him gazing after me. Waving my hat in adieu, I rounded the corner and out of sight in an instant. But my heart was too full and sore to carry me further. So I turned to see if he yet stood, stood where I left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. 
He did not see me. And after he had glazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face toward home, and began to return, his head still uncovered. In his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze, and then hasting on my way, vowed deeply and sought by the help of God to live and act so as to never grieve, to never grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he has given me. End quote. <clears throat> that final vow that he would never grieve nor dishonor his dad and his mom carried him the rest of his life, the rest of his ministry. The impact of his father's faith and prayer and love and discipline was immeasurable. So much more could be said. Do we not see in John Patton's words the great impact, the great influence, the undeniable, the irreplaceable influence fathers have towards their children? Now, just one qualifier here. What makes the Christian's father's influence different than a non-Christian's father? Non-Christian father. What is the difference between Christian's fathers, Christian fathers and non-Christian, secular fathers? I mean, non-Christian dads, they take their kids to the beach, right? Secular dad, they coach Little League. They buy their sons and daughters toys and games. I mean, unrighteous, wicked fathers even take their children to Christian school, even religious meetings. The difference between Christian fathers and non-Christian fathers is that Christian fathers love God more than their own children. I wanted to title this sermon, Christian Fathers Hate Their Children. I, I asked the man, well, what do you think about that title? He's <laughs> like, wow, that's pretty radical. <laughs> that's pretty out there. But I said, well, it's, it's biblical, isn't it? Yeah, because what did Christ say in Luke 14:26? Unless you hate your father, mother, brother, sister, your children, unless you hate them, you cannot be my disciple. Right? Well, I didn't title it that because it might be, some might misunderstand, but it is true. Right? The difference between Christian fathers and non-Christian fathers is that we hate our children. We love God more. Right? Secular fathers love their children. They live for their children. Not Christian fathers. We don't live for our kids. We don't die for our kids. We live and die for Christ. But that makes us good fathers. That makes us, that makes our influence upon them biblical and God-honoring. If anyone has lived this out in the Bible, it is Abraham in Genesis 2, 22, right? I mean, Abraham lived out this love for God by sacrificing his son Isaac. 
You know, all along, until this week, I thought Genesis 22 was about faith. In fact, I preached a sermon like this four years ago on Genesis 22, and I called it a test of faith. I read scores of commentaries, scores of other sermons on Genesis 22, and they said it's all about faith. I don't think so. Here, God is not testing Abraham's faith in Genesis 22. God is testing Abraham's love. God is testing Abraham's love in Genesis 22. From this story, we learn four features of loving God first. Four characteristics of loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And all the fathers here loving God much more than your own children. Look at Genesis 22, verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. The narrator is careful to tell us that this is a test of Abraham. And he says to him, take now your son, your only son, whom you love. Underline that word, please, whom you love. Isaac. Go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering. On one of the mountains, which I will tell you. And here is a test. Take your son Isaac, your only son, the son whom you love, and sacrifice him to me. This is the first time the, lo- the word love is mentioned in the Bible. In Genesis 20.13, the Hebrew word is hesed, and it's kindness, it's not love. NIV is the only version that translates 20.13 as love. I believe that's a mistranslation. The word there is kindness. The first time the word ahab is mentioned here in the Bible is in verse 2 of Genesis 22. The Greek counterpart is agape. So the first time love is mentioned in the Bible is not between husband and wife. It's not between friends. It's not even between siblings. The first time the word love is mentioned, it describes a love between a father, between a father and his son. Abraham is commanded to take his son whom he loves to the land of Moriah, near what would be the city of Jerusalem, over a historic spot, and offer him there as a burnt offering. And Abraham, think about this, he can hardly believe his ears. Isaac was a child of promise. When he was 80 years old, his name was Abraham, the great father. And God said, I'm going to give you a son. And look up, Abraham, as there are stars in the sky, there will be your children. Sand in the desert, there will be your children. I'm going to change your name, Abraham, the father of many. And so for 20 years, he went around, oh, I changed my name, my, father, my name is Abraham, father of many. I mean, imagine he would go to parties and he would say, oh, what's your name, father of many, how many kids you got? None. <laughs> how old are you, 85? Okay, why did you change your name? I mean, that's faith. He waited for 20 years, when he turned 100, he finally got his son, Isaac, a child of promise. And God said, okay, now I want you to sacrifice your son. Why such a command? Because God was testing His love. So the first mark of love for God is that you are willing to give up anything for God. You love God above all things. 
You put God first. See, Abraham lived a life of faith, lived a life life of love. When God said, go, leave your family, leave your country, I'll show you a land you do not know, what did Abraham do? He left. When Lot, want, it said, Lot and him were getting prosperous, they were dividing land, because Abraham loved God, he told Lot, you choose wherever you want. Abraham trusted God and he loved God. But when he finally received the son of his promise, perhaps now there was a danger of Abraham loving his son more than loving his father in heaven. And that is a danger, isn't it? Right? Christians, we can handle adversity, but we can't handle prosperity. We can handle trials, but we can't handle blessing. It is a challenge for us to love God. It's easy to love God when we have nothing. But it's hard. It's a challenge. Isn't it for us to love God more than our wives, our children, more than our jobs, our reputation? our possessions, our ministry. Well, God saw that Abraham's love for his son was competing in his heart with his love for God. And God will not settle for second. He is a jealous God. Exodus 20 verse 5. God doesn't want prominence in our lives. He wants preeminence. God declares, you shall have no other gods above me, before me. Not in His presence, but you will have no other gods above me. Matthew 22, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. That's why Christ, unless you love God first, love me first. And hate all your relationships, your familiar relationships. You you cannot be my disciple. That's why after Peter denied him three times in John 21, Jesus' only question, it wasn't, why did you deny me, Peter? What were you thinking? You know, why didn't you pray? Why didn't you listen to me? Those weren't his questions. Those were the questions I would have asked Peter. What was Christ's question to Peter? It was, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Well, that is the question Christ gave to Peter. That is the question God gave to Abraham. And that's the question God gives to us. Right? Our whole lives are simplified to this one question. Do you love God? Do I love God? Well, imagine Abraham, certainly upon hearing these words, immediate horror flooded Abraham's soul and dark waves pounded him over and over again. God was calling him to put his son to death with his own hands and to then incinerate the remains as a burnt offering to God. This task hit him where it hurt the most. Nothing else could hurt him more than giving up the son he loved. It was a tremendous test of his love. And imagine the pain of Abraham And as a father, I cannot conceive, imagine the torment that must have flooded his heart as he went to bed that night. What a sleepless, torturous night he must have experienced. His heart must have been broken, breaking all throughout the night. 
But what does Abraham do? Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. He split wood for the burnt offering, and arose, and went to the place of which God had told him. Notice this, that Abraham's obedience is prompt. It's prompt. His heart is torn, yet he obeys. Simple obedience. It tells us that true love results in obedience. Second mark of true love for God. Love obeys. I am tremendously impressed by the obedience of Abraham. I mean, we are so inclined to excuse ourselves from hard things, to rationalize our way out of difficult situations. We are so inclined to be pragmatists and look for loopholes, looking for ways out of obeying God. We all get worked up. And yet, Abraham, he doesn't wait a day. Did I really hear God right? Right? Maybe I need to wait a few days and pray about it. I don't have peace in my heart about this command. You know, I don't know if I agree with this. Let me get some wisdom. Let me get some counsel. Let me call my friends. Let me look up a commentary on Genesis 22 and see if this is what it really says. He does not do that. He rises early next morning and he leaves to obey God. And it tells us the simple principle that true love obeys. And obedience is, a, is the proof of love. Obedience is the proof of love for God. They are inseparable. John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you will obey what I command. If you love me, you will obey what I command. John fourteen twenty one. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. John fourteen twenty three. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. John fourteen twenty four. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. When someone is disobedient to God, it's obvious you don't love God. Period. There's no other reason. John fourteen thirty one. The world must learn that I love the Father, and therefore I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Our Lord's obedience is a proof of His love for the Father. 1 John 2.5 If anyone obeys, his, obeys God's word, God's love is truly made complete in him. Abraham's obedience to God was an outward evidence, outward proof of his inward love for God. This tells us that love is not a feeling that one has for God. Love is not an experience that we have with God's Word. Love is not intellectual understanding of the Word of God. Love is a verb and it is seen in one's life, a life of obedience to God's commands. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young man, Stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go yonder and we will worship and return to you. It was a three-day journey from Beersheba, Genesis 21-32, to Moriah. A three-day journey, about 40 miles. 
And think about all the thoughts that must have raced through his mind. Think of what was going on in his heart. Upon arriving at the destination, Abraham utters a most intriguing statement. Stay here to his servants. We will go and worship and we will return to you. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on his son Isaac, and he took in his hands the fire and the knife. The two of them walked on together. This portion of the narrative brings about an intense heightening of the tension. The climax is nearing. They are alone now, just two of them. They are walking to the place of Isaac's death. The reader is told the two of them walked on together with a poignant picture of the father and son. The father going to the greatest trial of his life and the son is oblivious. He just thinks we're going to worship God. We'll come right back. And then a simple dialogue is recorded between these two, between the father and the son. Verse 7, Isaac spoke to to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood. We have the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. The response of verse 8 is a statement of faith. Either way, God has provided. Perhaps God will provide a substitute. If not, Isaac, God is the one who gave you to me. And so he has provided the sacrifice. Either way, God has provided. And then the reader is told in verse 8, two of them walked on together. Third mark of true love for God is that true love causes endurance. True love produces endurance. Three days, 40 miles. There are, they are minutes from Isaac's death. Abraham's love is not deterred. Against all hope, he endures. He is committed to follow through. He is committed to carry on and obey God's command no matter what it takes of him. Verse 9, Father and Son arrive at the appointed place. Abraham built the altar there, arranged the wood, bound his son, laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. The slow, deliberate, calculated, blow-by-blow description of events is most impressive. One commentator says, details are noted with frightful accuracy. Notice the passivity of Isaac. There is no resistance here on his part. He completely trusts his father. He lays down on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand. He took the knife to slay his son. And he fully intends to carry out the action required to kill his only son. And here is the fourth mark, fourth and last characteristic a first love for God. True love for Christ, for God, has no limits. True love has no limits. Obeys God. Obeys whatever God asks. Follows God wherever He calls. 
The depth of the true Christian discipleship is such that obedience to God is the utmost priority. Everything else, even the life of loved ones, is second. Samuel Zwemer, a famous missionary among Muslims, he gives a stirring witness to the depth of his love for God. In 1897, he and his wife and two daughters sailed to the Persian Gulf to work among Muslims, Muslims in Bahrain. Their evangelism was largely fruitless. In 1904, both their daughters, ages 4 and 7, died within 8 days of each other. 50 years later, Samuel Zremer looked back on this period and wrote, The sheer joy of it all comes back. Gladly I would do it all over again. David Livingstone from Scotland Many church historians acknowledge him as the greatest missionary of the 19th century. Concerning his missionary work in Africa for 33 years, he said, quote, People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice, which is simply paying back a small part of a great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? Is that sacrifice Away with such a view and away with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, danger now and then, with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this be only for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall hereafter be revealed in and for us. He concludes by saying, I never made a sacrifice. For Abraham, this was not sacrifice. This was his privilege. This was his joy to obey the Father that he loved. He was willing to give everything the blade was raised high, flashing in the rays of the morning sun. But it was not permitted to fall. Verse 11, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, and Abraham. And he said, Here I am. I said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him. For I now know that you fear God. I now know that the greatest fear in your heart is not losing your son. The greatest fear in your heart is losing the Father in Heaven. I now know that. Do nothing to Him. And at that moment, God provided a sacrifice, a substitute sacrifice, and Abraham named that place Peniel. The Lord will provide. And from this moment on, God's covenant promise to Abraham was unleashed. The nation of Israel was born. Well, to close our time, let me just share with you just a few application thoughts in light of our study in Genesis 22. First of all, what is your greatest fear in life? Is it losing 
a loved one, losing a family member, losing your job, losing your life, or is it losing your love for God? Is that your greatest fear? As Christians, that ought to be. As Christians, our greatest fear is that we will lose our first love for God. To hear what the church at Ephesus heard in Revelation 2, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. That ought to be our greatest fear. Secondly, let me share with you just some marks of weak love, immature or false love for God. First mark of an immature love for God is that it seldom goes beyond words. Fickle, sentimental love abounds in words, but it goes, does not go beyond that. There is lots of talk about love. Lots of singing and praying and discoursing and reading books about love for God. But that's all it is. It's just talk. Some might know all the right things to say, but, they, but their lives don't reflect the power of God's love through obedience. 1 Corinthians 4.19, Paul says that the kingdom of God is not to be just discussed. It's not just to be talked about. It is to be lived out. Living it out is a true reflection of love for God. I mean, it's kind of a silly illustration, but I mean, it's lived out in our lives. And I remember, you know, when, when I would, these past few weeks, I was fighting through traffic, driving around, and my sir and I were dating years ago. I mean, I used to live in Downey. She used to live in Irvine. I mean, traffic was horrible. But we would fight through traffic for two and a half hours. Not a problem. Sir would tell me, man, it's like five o'clock. It's traffic. Do you really want to drive down here? What traffic, right? <laughs> Highways are wide open, right? They're crawling along at five miles an hour. Right? It's just my love for her doesn't... This is not words, but it produces action. If we love something, it results in movement. It results in obedience. How much more with God? Second mark of immature, immature love is that it lacks lasting obedience. It lacks lasting obedience. Immature love flares up, you know, for a moment. It's like a firework. It's bright. It makes a lot of noise. It is visual. But it's momentary. After a while, it's gone. It's snuffed out. There is no long-term commitment. That's weak love for God. That's immature love for God. True love for God is lifelong. It's eternal. Through the ebb and flow of life, through the joys and trials, to the times of difficulty, heartache, to the times of blessing, love for God doesn't change. Fourthly, thirdly, immature love loves the gift more than the giver. Loves the gift more than the giver. 
And let me just talk to the fathers that were up here this morning. Just knowing how the unique influence all the fathers, myself included, have in our family and in our church. We have the power for good and power for evil. What sets us apart from fathers in our workplaces, fathers in the world? They all take their children to Dodgers games, Angels games. All right? They all watch right, sports with them and buy them toys and go to the park and, and buy them food. What sets us apart? It's that we hate our children. We hate our children if it means they come in the way of us loving God. Do we love God first and foremost? And finally, to close our time, what a parallel between Isaac and Jesus Christ. God told Abraham, give me, sacrifice your son to Abraham. God's word was law. At that moment, Christ, Isaac was dead. God resurrected Isaac, gave him back on the third day, just like Christ. Christ was dead for three days, rose again on the third day. Isaac carried the wood to the place of his slaughter. Christ carried the cross. Who was to be the one carrying out the death of Isaac? It was to be Abraham. Well, who killed Jesus? It was God. God killed Jesus. God was the one who put him to death, crucified him as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. But a clear sacrifice, clear difference was that sinful Isaac was spared. And Abraham didn't have to go through the pain of losing his son. But God didn't spare his own son. God gave his son, demonstrating his love. And his son was murdered on the cross. Now remember John 12 sermon weeks ago, why did God do that? Because he's a good father. He loved himself more than he loved his son. Right? Our father loved his son perfectly, yet he was passionate for his own glory. He was passionate for himself. Our God is not an idolater. He didn't idolize Jesus. He didn't Worship Jesus above himself, but he worshiped himself and he gave his son because of his higher love for himself. As we have prayed so often, may this Father's Day be a reminder for us to love our God, who is our Father. Let's pray. I can give all of you just a minute to respond to the message and ask ourselves if we love God above all things, if we have our first love for our Father and ask ourselves if we're willing to give up anything and everything to prove, to show that we fear God that our greatest fear in life is to lose the love of our Father, to lose our love for Him.
Our Heavenly Father, after all is said and done, that is your question to us. Individually, one by one, we're with you alone by the Sea of Galilee. And you're asking us, do you love me? You know all things, Peter said. You know our lives. You know our sins. You know our weaknesses, our feelings. And yet, you want to know if we love you. Lord, that's where Christianity stands and falls. That's the heart of our relationship to you. Lord, we confess that we have forsaken our first love for you. That other more desirable, attractive, pleasurable things have crowded our hearts. Lord, rescue us, save us from the bondage of this world the darkness of this age that leads us astray. We are so prone to wander, prone to leave the God that we love. Or like a moth that is attracted to light. Or may you attract us again and may our hearts turn away from this world and turn towards you. May our love for you not just be sentimental, not just be emotional, not just be something that is practiced on Sundays, but may our love be manifested by a changed life, by our resolute decisions, by resolute decisions to live for you and for you alone. May we resolve in our hearts never to, to do anything to bring shame nor dishonor to your name. Jesus' name we pray.